0: Um, So, if you want to go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, or 32, verse 4, and we'll get to it in just a few minutes. So, at this point in Abram's life, he was living in Canaan. He was living near his friend, Mamre, and Lot was just freshly rescued by um, Abram and his forces. He had been taken hostage, him and his family, from invading kingdoms. And Lot was living near this city called Sodom. And he knew that Sodom was a terrible place. Full of sin, full of all the worst things that you can imagine. It was horribly evil. And so during this point in time, Abraham and Sarah and their family and um, their shepherds and all of their cattle were living near Mamre. And um, Abraham and Sarah are really, really old. They've been promised by God that they're going to receive this son even though that they are far past the age of having kids. And so as they're sitting under a tree in the middle of the day, it says that three men approached Abraham and Sarah. One of them was as the son of God. This is one of the first times in the Bible that we see Jesus reference before the gospels. And it says that the two other men were angels accompanying him. And the main ideas of what they're saying here, and this is from Genesis chapter 18 is that this son, Isaac, who would come, is going to happen. God is making this promise for about the third time, and he's saying, this is going to happen. You can trust me. And then God says, and by the way, that city, Sodom, where your nephew, Lot, is living, well, I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to observe it. I'm going to see what it's all about because everything that I know about it says it's evil. And Abraham showed them hospitality and in the midst of eating with God and the angels, he said, look, God, I know they're really, really bad. But if there are a hundred righteous people in the city, will you save it, please? And God says, yes, Abram, because you asked me, I will save the city. I will not destroy it if there are a hundred righteous people. And Abraham talks God down. And he says, God, even if there is just one righteous person in Sodom, will you save it? God says yes. And so the men leave to observe Sodom's wickedness. And so at this point, as, you know, Christians studying our Bible, It's appropriate for us to ask a legitimate question here. Was God's pending judgment of Sodom a righteous action? So, if you'll stand with me, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. And it says, The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are entirely just, a faithful God without prejudice. He is righteous and true. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your character and that neither fail us. God, we know that we can trust you. And I pray that through the scriptures this morning, we can see that we can trust you completely, totally, 100%. In Jesus name, amen. You may be seated. So to understand God's character, we have to understand what justice is. Because besides being loving and merciful, which is what our current culture likes to harp on, eh, Jesus is love. Jesus is mercy. But Jesus and God is also just. And so a good way to think of justice is this. If a judge knew that a criminal was guilty, and the criminal even confessed to being guilty, but then that judge let the criminal go free, we would call that judge corrupt. That judge would probably be uh, locked up himself, right? He would lose his position, lose his license to, to have that job. That would be terrible. Justice is the correct punishment for the crimes that are committed. And the Bible tells us clearly what rebellion against our creator looks like and what those consequences are it, it's death not just physical death but eternal death so god is just he he has to treat all of creation with the same rule of law rebellion against god equals eternal death and so god is the creator he is the sovereign king and scripture tells us that people will bow down to god in one of two ways either in worship love and obedience, or in judgment. And so, justice is not God being cruel. It's just him behaving as king of everything. He is the ultimate authority. And when we commit treason against the king, justice is what we deserve. And since we know that every person in all of history, besides Jesus, has committed this high treason against God, And we know that God is just. The fate of every person who has ever or will ever live is eternal death in hell. Thankfully, God was merciful in giving us Jesus, who took our punishment on himself. You see, God gave us a way out of this because he loves us. He doesn't want that for us. That's the point of the Bible. And so here in in Genesis, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 19. We see a good example of God's character, his justice, and his love and his mercy. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 29. Mm -hmm. says the two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. And When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. And then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said, we would rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them and at the entrance and shut the door behind them. He said, Don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men, because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said, adding. The one came here as an alien, but he's acting like our judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angels said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy it, because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. They were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lut on. Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters. They brought him out and left him outside the city. And as soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It is a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it, so that I can survive. And he said to him, All right, I'll grant you your request about this matter, too, and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. And therefore the city is named Zor. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zor. Then out of the sky the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that the smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. You know that story, right? It's pretty famous. A lot of people have issues with that story. See, this story is where we learned that the men of the Lord were actually angels. It's where it actually spells it out for us. And Lot did the right thing. He greeted them, invited them to stay at his house. But here's an important thing to note. The city square was supposed to be the safest part of the city. If you were in the square, no harm was to come to you. It was often true that vagrants, as they were traveling, would sleep in the city square. That was a normal thing in their culture. So for Lot to tell them, no, you need to stay in my house, tells us he knew who he was living around. He knew the terrible culture he was living in. He also had no idea that they were angels. He called them lords, which is like, as today we would say, sir or ma'am. And so the angels wanted to stay in the town square to observe the people of Sodom. And the men of the city demanded that Lot give them to him to abuse them. And what did Lot do? He offered his daughters instead. So we get this idea that Lot could be this great person, and then he offers his kids. Terrible. So the angels blinded the mob to deter them from their evil desires, and even in their blindness, the men of the city refused to give up and kept trying to break into Lot's house. So the angels told Lot to flee with his family, away from Sodom, not to look back. Were there 10 righteous people in the city? No. It was an awful environment. And was Lot a righteous man? I'd say no. No. But God remembered Lot because of Abraham. And so what happened to Sodom? Fire and brimstone fall from the sky. The total depravity and the evil of the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah to us reading this story should be obvious. You know, we see it, you know, from the examples of the sin that they were actively committing. Totally unrepentant. You know, often Christianity, we see this story and we use it as a way to say, and attack homosexuality as the ultimate sin. Because that's what these men were trying to do, right? And so that must be the sin for which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. But see, the Bible actually tells us that there's way more to this story than just one sin that they were into. We should understand that sexual sin did play a large part in the role of its destruction just like sexual sin destroys our lives today. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 48 and 50. It says, As I live the declaration of the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as you and your daughters have. Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food and comfortable security, but didn't support the poor and the needy. They were haughty, And did detestable things before me, so I removed them when I saw this. Notice it doesn't mention homosexuality anywhere in that. It actually turns it on a whole new head and says that they were not helping the poor and the needy. They were prideful, they were greedy, they were gluttonous. And so in this chapter of Ezekiel, God is giving the Israelites a clear picture of their history, how they were set apart. How they were meant to be faithful to him. And God uses the story of Sodom to point out their total failure in this regard and says that they are like a cheating husband or a wife. And so, but we see here that th- there were more reasons for Sodom's destruction. So, we need to understand something is that many people have turned homosexuality into the sin, as if it is the worst of all sins. And the Bible does say that it's sin. Do not get me wrong. It's against God's design. But the Bible also says that heterosexual lust is sin. Sexual acts outside of marriage is a sin. Pornography is a sin. And that's a huge one. The latest statistics tell us that 82% of every American is watching pornography. That is a lot. That is a closed door kind of sin, but I tell you what, it is popular and you know people and you have no idea what they're doing. It's all sin. It's all the same in God's eyes. And so we have to be honest here. Both our sin are equally sin. And it's sad to see Christians in the United States say really horrible things about homosexual people when the Bible is clear that all sin comes with the exact same consequence. We all commit that sin. We all have to have a Jesus-first attitude when we are evangelizing to people. We have to see people for more than what they choose to do. We need to see people with the love of Jesus first. And let Jesus do the fixing once they accept him as their Savior. This passage says that Sodom didn't take care of its poor and its needy. There's another reason for its destruction. Look at our own country. We have many goods and services that people need. And we're the most wealthy country in the world. Yet, how many of us as a country neglect the poor and the needy all around us? We can give it to the government and the government can take care of them. They can fend for themselves. It's a one-sided argument for someone to say that God will judge homosexuals while they're committing sins against God all on their own. Like it's no big deal. The church has to be acting with grace and with wisdom. Yes, homosexuality is something the Bible is very clear about. Yet our church, the worldwide church, should be the people who are standing with their arms open wide, ready to love and share the gospel of the LGBT community, instead of pushing them away, saying, you have to fix yourself before you're welcome to Jesus. It's not what Jesus did. It's not the way he acted. That wasn't his attitude. And so we have to fight to break the stereotype that portrays the church is not willing to love homosexual people as Christ loves both us and them. And if we don't do it, then what community do they run to? They're going to find like-minded people who lead them away from Jesus. And then they are just lost and it will have been our responsibility. We've got to be better than that. We cannot affirm what they're doing, but we have to love them as people first. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, every kind of homosexual." Thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbal abusers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So this gives us a list of life-defining actions that will prevent people from heaven. And included is sexual immorality as a general statement. And it mentions homosexuality specifically. But verse 11 is key, however. If you can put that last slide up. That's key. Where it says, and some of you used to be like this. We all were there. Might not have been struggling with the same thing they are. But God redeemed us from our own stuff. And if God can do that for us, and I guarantee God put someone in your life to bring that about to happen, he can use you to reach these people too. You make these choices that maybe we don't understand. We don't have to understand. We just have to love them. Love them through it. Give them Jesus. And so we don't have to be afraid of the LGBT community because like I said, some were some of us, God redeems all sin. He redeems our immediate sins that we might find acceptable culturally. He also redeems us from life-dominating sins, no matter what they are. Christ can and will redeem us and bring us the true life that we, too often we search for in our own pet sins. And so because of Sodom's rampant and willful wickedness, God chose to destroy it. But you see, in Lot's life, we can see God's mercy, too. So we see the justice of God in Sodom, but we see God's mercy in Lot's life. See, mercy is when you deserve to be punished, but you're let off the hook. When justice being rightfully punished for something that you did. So God removed Lot from Sodom and protected him as an act of mercy and of grace. Lot didn't deserve to be saved. He did some pretty awful stuff, even up to the moment that he was saved by the angels. But Lot's faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. Let's look at Second Peter, where Peter spells it out for us. And it says, And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who were going to be ungodly, and if he rescued a righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral uh, For as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So it was nothing that God did or that Lot did. It was all from God. God chose to rescue Lot from that. He was surrounded by people who were engaged in lifestyles of gross sin, all kinds. And even though he tried to be against that culture, he still ended up participating in it. He was willing to let his daughters be violated. So many Christians, you know, we make these lists of sins that we tolerate. And then we have this other list of sins that make us cringe. And that's a dangerous attitude when we live a life where we say that we're committed to being more like Jesus so we need to take time in our lives and determine our attitude about sin. Are we following God's standard for what sin is defined as, or are we following our own idea of what is good and what is not, and then saying that it's all God? Because Jesus did not pay more on the cross for homosexuality or murder than he did for gossip or lust or chemical addiction. All sin is treason against God, but we can't forget that God's judgment has been satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And even though Christians, we deserve God's wrath for our sin, Christ took it. And we get God's mercy for our sin. And it's our responsibility then to go out and spread it. It doesn't matter who it is, God died for everybody. And there is no need to fear God's judgment for who you are or what you do if you're in Christ. It's Christ first. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and changes you from the inside out. There's no need to clean yourself. Let God do it. And we have to have that same kind of grace and mercy with the people around us because they need Jesus first. And then Jesus can do the hard work of changing them from the inside out, no matter what their sin is. Our verse over the last several weeks with Pastor Corey has been 1 John 4.18, and it's perfect here. It says, There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. There's no need to fear God's judgment if you're in Christ Jesus. His perfect love casts out all fear of torment and all fear of judgment so you have to decide where are you with Jesus this morning are you afraid of the judgment that's coming because of you're not following him he's not important to you maybe you have questions maybe you are a christian but you've you've made these lists of what is right and what is wrong Maybe it doesn't really line up with what the Bible says. Being a Christian means taking a critical look at your life and allowing God to to change it. It's not an affirmation just to live the way that you want to. Being a believer doesn't change that. In fact, it makes it more so. Every day, putting on Jesus and becoming more and more like him. So if you would, stand with me and we'll pray, and uh, the altar will be open for you. Dear God, thank you, thank you again for your word. For the fact that it's honest, that you don't lie to us. And that it is convicting and shows us how to live, even when sometimes it feels abrasive, sometimes it hurts, sometimes it's offensive. But we know that you've given it to us out of love. And that you've shown us how to live. And that we need to be reaching the world around us for your gospel. To a people that are resistant. To a people that have hard hearts. To people that are trying to persecute the church more every day. God, you're calling us to reach them. And God, I pray that you give us the courage and the boldness and the strength. To follow you unapologetically. And to preach your gospel unapologetically. Pray that you'd work on us. You'd make us more like you, and that we would be willing to make that change. That we would follow you all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.